Welcome to the Merchant Sales Podcast. Well, Patty, I'm so excited to share the episode today with our listeners. Um, a lot of great information today, would you say? A lot, I, I, what, I, what I refer to as actionable information. Yes. And there's a lot of stuff that you can take from this, this uh, particular podcast and, and put it to work next week. Sure. So we'll break it down real quick. Uh, interview with Dustin Magaziner, a repeat uh, that we're going to go into here in just a second, talking about telemarketers, how to build your telemarketing team um, and or leverage the process for telemarketing team to schedule appointments. So that's really the theme of the episode. Then we go into the insiders report. Patty, tell us a little bit about the insiders report today and what you're going to cover. Uh, interchange and, uh, and what a hot uh, topic that tends to be in legal legal settings. Yes, yes. And, yeah, and we're, something to look out for, the debate over interchange is not over. No, it's not. And there's uh, billions of dollars at play. And I think it's something that a lot of agents need to be aware of to have conversations with their processors and, and even with the merchants just to kind of yeah. be aware and show your expertise in that. Um, I close it out by taking a little snippet from Dustin's interview along with the topic I already wanted to cover. And I talk about contactless payments, how to generate urgency from contactless payments with a telemarketing script. Yeah, and I think it's a really good advice. Awesome. Well, Patty, let's dive right into our interview with Dustin. Let's go. Hey, everybody. We are here today with Dustin, and Dustin is a partner over at Paybright. How are you doing today, Dustin? Well, thanks for having me, and I hope you're having a great day so far. Yeah, doing awesome. So uh, you were just on the podcast, I don't know, several months ago, right? We were talking I was just going to some... say that, probably like six months ago, right, Dustin? Yeah, I think uh, not quite six months. I think probably about yeah, three, four months yeah. or so, I think it's been. Yeah, yeah. but it's, it seems like it's been a while, but good <laughs> to see you again. Everything has slowed down recently, right? Yeah, <laughs> exactly. Well, so last time we were talking a lot about uh, free terminals. Um, mm -hmm. Free terminal placement. Right. This time we're going to talk about um, telemarketers and how to use telemarketing to grow your portfolio, uh, get more leads, things like that. So, um, you know, Dustin, before we dive into that, can you tell us about uh, maybe your early experience with telemarketers? I know I've had some horror stories and some success stories, right? So tell us your experience with telemarketers kind of along the way and, and how you've gotten to where you're at with, with working with them the way you do now. Yeah, so we we uh, took us a little while to figure out telemarketers appointment setting, and and it's still even today I'd say a work in progress. Right. Um, we've pretty much tried everything and everything from overseas freelancers um, to you know in-house W two, which is where we've ultimately you know really had to wind up finding our best results at least in success. Um, but you know our program, we were we were looking for a solution where we could provide appointments because of course there's telemarketers where you're sure. doing direct sales, right? Um, but on our program, we're talking about appointment setting for agents in the field, mm -hmm. and we were looking to provide that and wanted to see what would work. So we've tried probably three dozen different call centers over the last seven yep. eight years, yep. freelancers, um, you know, people that just message us on LinkedIn and say, hey, we'll give you a shot from paying right. per lead to pay at per hour to just per campaign and everything in between. So it's taken a while for us to figure out what works, but over the last, I'd say four and a half years, we've, we've really gotten to a point where we're really comfortable and, and perfected it and uh, nice. you know, have definitely found a solution that seems to work. That's awesome. So, so let, you know, you brought up a lot of things right there when you were talking about overseas and freelancers and all this. So talk to us about where you're at now in terms of where are you finding these telemarketers that are scheduling appointments? You know, what's your kind of criteria? You know, how are you getting the right people in the door to do this? For sure. So with our model today, we, we use in-house W2 uh, people for that. Sure. Um, they're 100% US-based. So 
there is definitely a cost and quality difference between using somebody here domestically and, and using somebody who is overseas. Right. Uh, and that's not to say that one model works better than others. It just works better for us. Yes. Um, and for what our agents are looking for, there are you know, people that are providing maybe 20 or 30 appointments a month with a much lower quality. We'd rather provide high quality appointments so that if an agent is going to take the time to drive somewhere, to go somewhere, right. they have a good shot at meeting with the person sure. um, or with the business owner. But uh, today we, we go with a W-2 approach um, with people that are pretty seasoned at this point. I, I think our average appointment center has three years worth of experience wow. working with just us at this point. So obviously it's taken us time to get there. Of course. Uh, you know, when we first started doing it in-house, they had two weeks of experience. Right. But at this point, the, the average person actually has three years of experience working just with us. We still have new people that we try out and, and teach and everything. Um, and then we do supplement with a uh, third-party call center that we contract, but they are all W-2 employees of this call center. Okay. And we only use that for overflow. So at certain times, we might try to sure. run a campaign or right. maybe our call center, people are sick or when COVID happened and we were kind of scattered there, right. um, we will supplement to some extent sometimes with a third-party call center mm -hmm. that we have a really good relationship with also here in the U.S. Um, and, you know, we have you know, dialers that designate just for us. So really right. good relationship, but we do about 95% of it through our, our own W2. Yeah. I, I'm such a big fan of that. Um, you know, and it's, and I've had some success with freelancers. Um, ironically, all, all of my success I think has been either U S or Canadian based, um, freelance telemarketers as far as the freelance side. But mm -hmm. you know, when it comes down to it, you know, having a person in an office, <laughs> you know, when it comes to telemarketing, right. I mean, there's a certain amount of control and training and development, right? Like, have you found that that makes a big difference that you can actually go in and say, here's what you're going to say, or let's, let's record your calls and have a conversation let's do training that's mandatory like is that one of the reasons you've gone w2 versus freelancer makes all the difference i mean i can tell you some of the problems that we've had when we used third-party freelancers and such but just from following the script perfecting the script right. sticking to the script is is you think it's easier than it is yeah um, also their ability to follow along with the conversation do they actually understand some of the details of credit card processing? right right um of course we we don't have our you know, appointment setters knowing every detail of credit card processing sales, or they'd probably be out there selling. Right. But they know enough that I'd call them dangerous, that they can have a real conversation with right. business owners. And when you're using freelancers, oftentimes they have a friendly voice, but they may not be an expert in credit card processing or even know too right. much about it. Right. Yeah, that would seem to me to be really important that they have to know what they're selling. And also, it sounds like you're saying there's a certain amount of accountability, right? I mean... Yeah. Accountability is everything, right? When yeah. you, we had issues where people just, you know, they aren't showing up for work, but they right. just wouldn't file that day, or they were busy, or they disappear on you for two weeks. Right. Um, and you're expecting, you know, yes. appointments from them, and they don't do yeah. it. Yeah. Um, so we can track metrics extremely closely. We know what data they're using. We know that they're not recycling leads or giving us leads that they're also giving to five other people, which is unfortunately a problem in this industry. Right. Um, so just from a quality perspective, from an accountability perspective, and yeah. from being able to track results, we've really found that the only way for us to successfully do it has really been by, yeah. you know, using people that are accountable. Yeah. And you know, I, I want to jump in on this too. And it's, this would be an interesting podcast. I normally don't have very, uh, well, I normally hide my strong opinions about a topic, you know, um, this, <laughs> th this one I won't, but, uh, just cause I deal with this so much. And I mean, the one thing doesn't, I love what you're saying because the biggest problem I see with individual agents, especially that want to go the freelancer route is I tell them, okay, yeah, you can make that work, but the only advantage is cash flow and commitment. In other words, they're mm -hmm. like, yeah, I want to hire a freelancer so I can just pay money and get leads. 
right. then don't hire a freelancer. You still have to communicate every day. You have to train. You have to listen to calls. You have to have the accountability. Like all it's, it's all there. The only benefit is you can have a freelancer for like three hours a day. Like that's the only benefit. And, and that right. benefit is a trade-off of, as you mentioned, accountability, training, right? Everything else. <clears throat> and so you can make the freelancer thing work. I've, de- I've done it myself. I've seen others that have, that have done it. But especially I think at a company level, if you have like a team, if you need more than one full-time person, just hire them, right? I mean, I don't know what, what your thoughts are on that. I'm with you. And, and obviously, you know, I think the freelancer approach is an option for people, but it's very difficult. I mean, yes, the management is. part of that isn't always easy. No, right? Unfortunately, you maybe get lucky or maybe you don't with the person that you bring on first or second or third. So um, obviously, you know, I'm a little biased here. Right. I think, you know, it's a lot easier to go with somebody who already has that system in place, but the freelancer option or hiring somebody can work, but it's very challenging. Yeah, um, yeah. It, but it, it certainly can work. It's, it has a lot of hurdles though. Sure. Okay, so let's let's move on a little bit here. So I want to talk about compensation. <clears throat> this is something that nobody really talks about very much when they talk about telemarketers. It's always about, well, do you W2, freelance or whatever. But ultimately, you know, you mentioned you've had these people there for three, four years. This is not like the easiest job. This isn't a job you come in every morning and are like, oh, yeah, I'm just going to chill here and get some leads. This is like grueling, very difficult work. Um, how do you keep your people motivated and what role do what role does compensation play in that in that motivation? Yeah, so good question. And I think we go a little against the grain here. Most of the programs I see out there are hourly and maybe a signing bonus of some kind. Right. Some of them also are just you get paid per appointment as a caller. Right. The reason we're not a huge fan of that is it actually can incentivize the, the appointment setter to set bad appointments. Yes. Right. Um, we've seen that all the time where they're just trying to set as many appointments as they can because they're getting paid for the more they put on the calendar. Right. So again, we really try to focus on our world and high closing ratio. We, Because of the agent demographic we work with, they get pretty upset if they're driving from bad appointment to bad appointment. Right. Of course. So we actually incentivize, we, we pay hourly, um, but on top of that, their bonus is based on their closing ratio. So if they're giving appointments to an agent who have aren't closing deals, it actually can impact our appointment setters. But the higher the quality of the appointments, the actual, the more bonuses they get. So it's based on sure. closing ratio um, in addition to the number of closed deals. So they still want to have appointments set, but they want to make sure those are good quality. Um, so it's, it's those, those are the variables we're looking at It's pure hourly plus closing ratio and number of appointments closed. So I want to dive in. I want to dig a little bit deeper on this cause this is so interesting. So of course, you know, as our listeners probably immediately figured out, you know, the negative downside to what you're describing is, as you mentioned, <clears throat> what if you get a new rep into the system, they start getting leads, but they don't know how to sell. Right. Yeah. So how do you deal with that with your telemarketer that's demoralized? It's, hey, I'm giving good appointments and they're not getting closed. What do you do? You Like round robin the appointments or how do you handle that? Yeah. So, again, our background tends to be a little bit more geared towards people that have either really good B2B sales experience or merchant sales experience. Got it. Typically, when somebody is brand new to merchant services, we want to get their first handful of deals, two, three, four deals kind of wrapped up before we do load them with some appointments, because the last thing we want to do is send somebody into a deal that they don't know how to sell. Right. But it, look, we have different agents with different closing ratios. Some of that's geographic differences. Some areas are just easier than others. And that's a variable I think people forget all the time when doing telemarketing. Um, not all territories are equal. But um, to answer that question, that's somewhat the nature. I mean, sometimes the appointment setters actually fight over which agents they're setting appointments for. <laughs> you know, I yeah. want this guy. Um, but that that is just one of the things. So we, we do round robin it where the you know appointment setter is calling for this person for a few hours and then they kind of move to the next. 
Good. Yeah, I like that. Cool. That's awesome. What one more round, uh, and then we'll move on to the next question. But let's talk about compensation for the agent. So I know we can't again get too much detail here and all that. But what I'm just curious about is. Are the agents bearing any of the cost, whether it be lower compensation or anything to get the appointment, or is that all just absorbed by your, you know, the company internally? So it, it does cost them on the residual compensation side of things okay. a little bit, um, but there's no upfront cost for them. So we bear I see. 100% of the expense. They have an appointment, they walk in, quality should be pretty good. Right. Um, they should have a good prospect right in front of them. So yeah, it, it is a little bit of a lower compensation side on the appointments. Now, we do differentiate between appointments and non-appointment deals. Course. So I know some places out there, if you take any appointments, now all your deals qualify under that right. schedule. That's not how it works. Um, but yes, on the appointments we provide, it is a uh, you know slightly lower residual plan. Cool. Well, so, so tell me then, Dustin, when you you know when you hire a new telemarketer, you know how do you get them up and running? Do you have any insights on that? You know how much time do you spend on training? I know you said they're experienced to a certain degree. In B, at least in the B2B, if not in the merchant services. But I would think there'd be some training involved there. And, you know, how soon after that do you get them on the phone? You know, when do you start requiring quotas? Can you give us a little insight on that? Sure. So the, you said, is there any insight I can give or anything? One thing I'd say is patience. It, it, it uh -huh. does take the time and patience. Um, but to answer your question, we, we first go through just a basic couple days of what is credit card processing? What is it we're actually doing? Again, we want to make sure that anyone that's setting appointments has some basic level of knowledge of what we're doing. Um, I've heard scripts and, and recorded calls from companies that have solicited us trying to set appointments before. And I'm like, send us a few sample calls and let me listen. And this is just, these people don't know what they're actually calling about. Right. right. I think they're selling a credit card machine and that's, we're really selling the service. Um, and so we want to make sure they have a basic knowledge of the industry, at least surface level. Um, from there, we, we let them shadow another caller for a few days. So they're actually just listening to live calls, call after call. Obviously, that can be a little bit boring at times, right. um, hearing these conversations and, and how they're going. From there, we go through some role-playing scenarios where fake calls, right? They're, right. they're doing some test scenarios with, with us where we're going through you know, exactly what they're going to say and, and just making sure that they can follow the script and you know, not have to find what page they're on. Um, and then from there, we have them go live. We're probably, not probably, we're not really looking for any quotas or anything for at least three to four weeks. I know that's hard for some people because they don't want to wait three or four weeks before they, you know, can even remotely quantify if this person's working out. Right. But you're still shooting yourself in the foot if you don't give this person some time to learn and, and right. you know, figure it out. Sure. So we, we go with about a four week time frame before we're really going to start expecting much from them. Yeah, I like and then that. after that, I mean, is there, you know, is there uh, sort of like a, does that, does that where the quota might come in? I mean, okay, let's say you train them for four weeks, you set them out on their own. Uh, what's the expectation for how soon they're going to start producing? Yeah, so our, our best appointment setters, and this is for us, I know there are people out there that maybe have appointment setters that do way better, um, but our average appointment setter will schedule two appointments a day. Um, which I think surprises people sometimes. I think that they surprises me actually. Yeah, eight appointments. But again, we're looking for quality. Right. So Average two. Our best people will set about five or six. Um, and if you're under like 1.8 a day on average, that's where we're starting to have some, you know, cost issues where sure. it's maybe that is actually costing us more money than they can probably generate. Unless their closing ratio is 70, 80 percent, we we need right. to see at least about you know 1.8 to two appointments a day on the on the low end per appointment setter. Hmm. 
<laughs> yeah, and you know, it's it's so interesting. I love this conversation, Dustin, because it's like <clears throat> I, I know what happens on, on the back end of this kind of stuff. Like I work with the companies that do like eight a day, you know, per per caller, and um, you know, it just it's different strategies, right? But I mean. Ultimately, you know, I'll just say it like it is. The only way to get like eight is to have a script that in some ways does trick the merchant into saying yes. I'm sorry. It's just that's just the truth. Now, I'm not saying it's necessarily always a bad idea. (laughs) You can do it with some form of integrity and and whatnot. But I mean, ultimately, you know, you're not going to you're not going to share a a lot of information and you're not going to get a lot of information as a requirement and still get more than four or five a day. And if you're really, it sounds like what you guys are doing is I'm correct me if I'm wrong. It sounds like after you kind of get that, yes, it sounds like your, your telemarketers, I'm guessing are going a little further to ensure quality before they send it out. Is that the case? Yeah. So we maybe go too far at times. Um, every appointment that we set, we verify a few things. First, they know what we're calling about. They know it's credit card processing. I mean, we make that right. utterly And that alone, you're going to go from eight to four. <laughs> <laughs> right, right. Um, they know that we're not, not their current processor. That's a big one, right? Oh, we're calling from your merchant services company. And they right. think they're meeting with their current company. There's, which, there's the trick, right? So they know we're not their current processor, right? Right away, cut out another 20% of those payments. Right, exactly. Um, we make sure that the person we're speaking with is the owner or decision maker. So one of the industries we were like appointment setting for is medical, which, you know, a lot of agents struggle to walk in and, and you know, pitch. Right. Um, and a lot of those appointments may be with like an office manager or something, but we still verify that they are the decision maker when it comes to their credit card processing account. Hmm. So we always make yeah. sure we're talking to the decision maker. Um, and then of course, you know, we're, we're verifying time address and, you know, again, making sure that they know that there's credit card processing being discussed here. And then we mentioned that they need to have the statement available. Plenty of them don't have statements available, but they, you know, if the agent shows up, they go, oh my God, sorry, I forgot my statement. Right. But once they see that, we're, we're already that much more, you know, into the conversation. Right. So sure. um, we do make sure that there's no quote unquote tricks. It's, it's actually a really important thing for us to, to feel good about the appointments we're setting and to make sure that that, that right. quality is there. Well, and I think it's such an important difference too of whether you're, you know, are these appointments for like kind of green reps where, you know, I don't know in your case, it's not for the green reps, you really care about activity. You know, it's mm-hmm. like, we just want to get them to turn off Netflix and go out in the field and actually walk into a business. So in those cases, that's where I see those other ways working potentially better where, yeah, the merchant doesn't totally know what's going on and maybe it's not really the decision maker, but your rep is out in the field and the odds of them getting a sale are much better on a bad appointment than they are in front of the TV. So, right. But what you're doing is more like, Hey, these are people that already know how to sell merchant services and you want to provide them. It sounds like with more of that kind of premium appointment where they're not wasting their time. Is that the deal? Exactly. So what we tell people all the time and, and mostly again, people that are experienced merchant reps is what if we can help you three or four more deals a month? Right. Um, isn't that a win-win? What we're not saying is, hey, we're going to help you walk into 30 businesses today because the people that we're generally talking to, they don't want that. Right. They don't want to you know, feel like they're waking up to five, six appointments or driving all over town. But for some of these green reps, that's 100% what they may need. Yes. That's not really our program now. Yeah, got it. No, I, I understand totally. I like it. Um, yeah, I think, it's, I think it's really smart because I think, again, a lot of the really experienced reps, for them, they know they can close really high. So yeah. it's like they don't want to waste their time. It's like, yeah, I'll, I'll and, and the other thing too, I mean, again, just reality, right? Our industry, there's people that make a lot of money. <laughs> so yeah. there's these reps that are making 15000 20000 a month in residual income, and they're not going to roll out of bed in the morning and and leave their family to go walk into 18 bad appointments. You know, they're just not going to do it. And that reminds me of, of one of my favorite reps to work with, right? He's, he's one of those guys. He has a right. really great residual check, and 
pretty much checked out for like a year. Right. Um, gave me a call, I don't know, January or so, and probably hadn't written a deal in seven, eight months. And he goes, right. uh, he, he called it fat and happy. He goes, I'm fat and happy. I need to get out there. Can you send me some appointments just so I have something to do, you know, once right. or twice a week and it gets me into the field again. And since then he's been back to being active and he's like, I just needed something to give me that spark. Right. Um, right. And that's partially what that program's for, right? Just keep them in a steady flow. They have something going on in the background in addition to everything else they're already right. doing. Right. Yeah. I, I like it. Okay. So, so I, I want to talk about script for a minute here. Um, obviously we're not expecting you to share your script with us on the podcast. There's two main things I want to focus on. Um, number one, I want to talk about script creation, which I know is kind of an iterative process. And I'm interested, number one, how did you kind of create the script initially, this process of creating a script, any tips about just the process of it? And then also which direction do you go? I know everybody leans a little bit differently towards standardization, versus kind of increased training and like more flexibility. So talk to us about, about those things, if you could, as far as script creation. Yeah, sure. So, so we actually have a few scripts, which I know sometimes uh, goes against the traditional line of thought. Everyone uses one script, right. and they're all saying the same thing. We actually have a few scripts. Um, so we do have a cash discount script. Um, we don't use that for all agents, though, because a lot of experienced agents still aren't on the cash discount side of things. So right. we have a lot of agents that don't sell cash discount yet and that's okay right so not everyone is is you know getting cash discount appointments because they don't want them um so we have a cash discount script we have a surcharging script because again depending on you know where people are that may be a more popular option um we have a traditional script with covid we also made quite a few changes to our script where we are really talking about contactless payments mm. apple pay right um yep. and in pads things like this just covid protection type of things yes um, and right now that has actually been probably our best script for the last few months. So, you know, we, we really made a change on that probably in June or so. Um, and we've actually had the highest ratio in terms of closings and appointment setting uh, over the last few months than we have historically yeah. um, just about COVID type things. Right. But ultimately, you know, what we want to do is, is we want to, you know, get the merchant interested in something, right? Whether it's savings, whether it's new, new terminal or technology. And again, that works with us since in our program, all the equipment is provided for free. We can sell free equipment. We sell, you know, no contract, no commitment. Right. Um, but we, we want to make sure we have something that hopefully appeals to this merchant in some capacity. Hmm. Um, you were also asking, I believe, about, you know, kind of how strict to the script do we want to keep them? Right, right. And that maybe comes into how experienced is the dialer. Some of these people that yeah. have been doing this four or five years now, um, they have some leeway. They may not be a hundred percent on the script anymore, but right. that's because they said the same thing a thousand times over and over. Right, again. and they know what they're talking right. about. Right, but somebody who's a little bit newer, we we do typically want to keep them on the script because when they sure. go off the script, that's when things maybe come up. They don't know how to answer anymore. Right. Um, like tell me about your rates, and they're like, oh wait, I don't talk about rates, and so they're totally uh, lost. So we we try to keep newer right. people pretty close to the script as much as possible. So one one question just popped into my head as you were describing that. So when you say you have multiple scripts, how do your telemarketers know which of these scripts to use? Is it right. like by agent or is it like when the person picks up the phone based on what they say or what, or what do you segregate the telemarketer by the script? Yeah. Yeah. By script. yeah. So each telemarketer has one script. Okay. That's what I thought. That's what they know. Um, but okay. telemarketers may have different scripts. Um, so that's, that's how we do it. I see. Um, yeah. So this handful of people only call for cash discount. Right. So if you have a rep that, that, that sells cash discount, they would be getting leads from one of the appointment schedulers that knows the cash discount script. Exactly. I and the reason is, again, um, 
you know, these people know appointment setting, but again, they're not merchant reps. So if we have to talk about, about interchange, cash discount and surcharging and all the different types of terminals and yes. so on and so forth, it's a lot of information for them to understand when they're never actually seeing terminals or out in the field right. or looking at statements. Right. So we find it much better for them to have one singular focus and that's what they're calling on appointments yeah. for. Love it. Love it. That's awesome. Um, okay. I have one, one last question for you. Um, and then I definitely want to get, uh, you know, I want you to share some information with our listeners that are maybe agents that are interested in getting the leads and all of that. Um, but the other group of our listeners is the ISO execs. They're listening right now saying, ah, I've been trying to get this to work for five years and I still can't. So I know you can't share the secret sauce, but do you have any kind of final tips or thoughts for them to say like, you know, if you could maybe go back in time to five years ago when you started on this journey of getting this the model going, are there any insights or tips you would share with them first of like, what would you do if you could go back and create this over again? Yeah. So, I mean, the one is <laughs> throw your analytics up front, out the door. Um, your ROI numbers, it's like the first six months to a year, you've got to be prepared to, to not make money. And I know that's tough for people to hear. Sure. It's a long-term project and it pays for itself long-term, um, but you're going to burn cash up front. There's no way around it. Your scripts are going to not work the way you want them to. Your agents aren't going to make the appointments on time like you want them to. There's going to be confusion. And we've had issues with time zones where the agent was West Coast and he was going on East Coast times and made the merchants upset until we explained to him, no, they're in your time zone. Right. Um, Because, you know, we're on the East Coast. He was on the West Coast. Um, So all kinds of things like that. And it's really difficult, I think, when you're first starting to figure out what the metrics are going to look like. But they, if you figure it out, they will work out. Yeah. The other part is there's a marketing side to it, meaning, you know, it, it helps, you know, an ISO grow from a marketing and a recruiting perspective that has intangible value. Right. Um, it's really hard to, you know, give a price to that per se. Right. Um, so, you know, that's maybe the advice. I know that's probably not so helpful. Always. I think it's actually uh, great. I think, cause I think a lot of people do kind of give up on it or get, or they, they get unnecessarily frustrated. I'll talk to an ISO that's like, we've been trying to get this telemarketing thing going for 90 days and we're still just burning cash. And I'm like, okay. And what else? Like that's <laughs> yeah. Right. 90 yeah. days is a drop in the, uh, right. in the bucket because you know, just as Justin was just saying, I mean, it's, it takes almost that much time to train the telemarketer. Right. 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 It probably took us about two years to really get everything working, you yeah. know, like somewhat smoothly. Um, I mean, that's a tough, yeah. you know, bullet to bite on, you know, when you're kind of right. getting up and running. And of course, not only is it the money, but it's all the time and energy you're spending yeah. on it too. Yeah. Um, and that's the part. I mean, it's, it's a lot of time, but once you get it up and running, it, it really right. should somewhat work. Um, the other thing that I'd say is, is important is, you really need to have somebody that understands some bit of the details of a call center. If you don't go and work in one, go and sit in one. I went and sat in one for 30 days. I didn't work in it. I just listened and sat and worked from a call center for 30 days, not even a merchant call center. Right. Just somebody that I knew that had a call center. I was like, Hey, do you mind if I just come and work here? You know, I won't bother you guys, but I want to hear what this is going. I right. listen into calls. And I was seeing how just call center calls, they were actually calling for insurance leads. Mm-hmm. Um, but it helped a lot. And was just seeing what was working in other industries. So, because yeah. I never grew up in a call center, right? right. I mean, there are right. people that work their way through one, and that's helpful. But um, a lot of us haven't in this world. Yeah. And so, you know, there there is some value to understanding what a call center is like because it's totally right. different than you know the outdoor sales approach, which is my, my background. Yeah, and I think to your point, I think even the the type of person, right? That's that's a telemarketer 
is they're not any more or less valuable than your outside sales reps. They're just very, very different, you know? Um, and, and so managing, if you're used to managing even W2 full-time salespeople, their kind of drive and determination and their definition of success is just dramatically different. And if you try to take that same management approach to a call center, it's going to fall to pieces because these individuals in the call center, they actually are looking for more structure. They're looking for more accountability. They're looking for massively more direction, right? Like, right. right? I mean, your, your agents, you, you know, you've called them and say, Hey, I had an idea. I, I noticed that the way you're selling, I have a, a way you could sell differently. They're like, shut up. <laughs> I'm going <laughs> to do whatever I want. You know, well, yeah. in the call center, if you have that same approach and you don't instruct them, they're like, I'm lost. You know, I want to quit because nobody's telling me what to do. They want that. So I don't know your thoughts now, but to me, it just seems like there's such a big management difference. A lot of people, I think, struggle with that transition as well. Totally. It's, it's not the same thing. And, and in our industry, right, um, there are exceptions here, but I, I'd say probably the vast majority of us in the ISO space are very hands off. I mean, these are right. most 1099 independent sales reps that are out there right. doing their thing. They do well, but they want to call us when they need us, not the other way around. Right. And it's, the total opposite when it comes to, you know, appointment setting, yep. you need to be out ahead of it. You need to understand when they're having problems before it happens because they, I mean, it's a tough job sitting there yeah. and calling oh, people my. all day and getting voicemails and hung mm-hmm. up on most of the time. Right. And so, you know, you need to, you know, make sure that they're getting through that. And, um, you know, you have a high, I hate to say it, but a high, uh, quit rate with new appointment yeah. setters as well. And so, you know, oh, yeah. some of those, you know, wanted me to kind of give some advice on, you know, you want to, a call center be prepared to have turnover too and, yeah. and be okay with it right um we want to keep that to a minimum but it's it's there's a lot it's of a structure that, that goes into the yeah. w2 yeah. calling world mm-hmm. things yeah the- I, I remember i used to work uh, across the the parking lot from a call center and it used to blow my mind you would you know it's like every, it seemed like every week it was a whole new set of faces i'd see <laughs> out in the parking lot you know um, yeah and it was like oh yep. yeah let's just turn over yeah. And you, you know, you can definitely have an impact on it as, as Dustin, as you mentioned, you have a lot of people that have been there a long time. I think one of the keys to it is, you know, the culture of, you know, making it exciting. It's, you know, that job is not exciting. It's just not. I mean, there's no way to describe it in a way that's exciting. It's just not exciting. <laughs> but you can make it exciting, you know, hourly contests. And, you know, this is where you've really got to use your imagination where, again, the individual agents, W2 or 1099, they want nothing to do with this. They don't care about your Halloween party. You know, like they don't. Right. But right. the call center is you got to be like excited. My wife, Christina, actually uh, ran a call center uh, before we met. And so I love getting her insights and stuff. I feel like she had one of the best groups in this huge call center because every day she brought in, you know, pride, like stupid stuff, you know, prizes yeah. she would give out, some corny contest that she would do and the best call of the day and the highest closure rate. And so it's a constant battle to keep it positive because call centers just, you know, it's like they just trend towards negativity and to get them positive is it's really, you're really rolling upstream, aren't you, Dustin? <laughs> 100%. Yeah, no, you're, you're 100% right. And, and also there's there's different demographics of, of people that are, are dialing. We've actually done really well. I know this is somewhat counterintuitive with, I call them part-time dialers. They, they are very part-time in the sense, I shouldn't say it that way. They're, they're very consistent. They've been with us for years, right? but they've been 15, 20 hours a week for years. Wow. They're not 40 hours I a week. I love that we idea. Have, yeah. That of course are. Um, but a lot of call centers, right? It's you're in mm-hmm. 40 hours a week, you clock in at nine, you leave at five, Monday right. through Friday. And you get burned out, you know, maybe. You, you burn them and they 
you know, stick around for six months. So we've actually done really well with people that are not looking for full time. They're very much so looking for 15, 20 hours a week. Mm. Um, it's not taking over their life. Um, we do have some part-timers, of course, but sure. we've done really well with kind of that mixture there too. Yeah, so I like it. the approach is just getting somebody in who's going to make the calls when they're in and they're going to come with a smile on their face because we all know calling with a smile actually makes a difference. Yes. Yes, oh, yes, it definitely does. Dustin, this has been so informative. I, I, I love this because it's it's a challenge that we don't talk about very much, um, but it's it's a real challenge out there. So before I let you go, though, I definitely want you to share some information. So for those more experienced bank card professionals who say, I want to learn more about your company, about free equipment, about getting appointments, where would you send them to learn more? Yeah, so like the last time, I know uh, <laughs> somewhat more not to, but um, you know, by all means, feel free to reach out to me. Um, you're more than welcome to email me. My email is Dustin at gopaybright.com or you're more than welcome to call me. And I, I know I gave my uh, direct contact the last. I'm happy to do it again this time. Sure. Uh, you can reach me at 856-904-6561. Um, so you're more than welcome to call me or email me anytime. Um, you don't have to to give us that phone number. Me. Give us that phone number one more time, Dustin. Yeah, it's 856-904-6561. Awesome. Dustin, thank you so much for your time today and your insights. Really appreciate it as always. This is the Insider's Report with Patty Murphy, brought to you by The Green Sheet. For nearly 40 years, The Green Sheet has been the go-to source for news, analysis, and educational tools that empower and connect payments professionals. If you're not reading The Green Sheet already, check it out on the web today at www.greensheet.com. Well, you know, James, uh, Senator Dick Durbin, the Illinois senator who authored the so-called Durbin Amendment to the Dodd-Frank uh, right. Act, uh, thinks merchants, particularly small shops, are getting a raw deal from the card networks and the major debit card issuers, hmm. and he wants the Federal Reserve to do something about it. Okay. He sent a letter to Fed Chairman Jerome Powell recently asking the Fed investigate allegations that Visa, MasterCard, and several unnamed big bank issuers are conspiring to keep merchants from routing debit card transactions through the smaller debit networks, you know, like Nice, Shazam, Pulse, those guys. Okay. You know, the, as we know, the Fed wrote the regulations that implement the Deb Durbin Amendment, but it shares enforcement responsibility with an alphabet soup of regulators, including the uh, CFPB, uh, FDIC, FTC, and the OCC. I always love rattling off those alphabets. Right. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> right. Now, well, but, before one, one thing. So let me just, let's back up for one second. So just to clarify sure. for our listeners that maybe aren't as familiar with all of this. So they may not understand the relationship with the the car the the debit network. So can you talk right. about, you know, the debit networks, many of them are actually owned by Visa and MasterCard and things of, along these lines, right? Some of them are owned by Visa and MasterCard. Some of them are still independent. Right. But they all, you know, the difference is when you look at like a statement, if you see something like Visa debit or MasterCard right. debit, that's not running over the debit networks. That's running over the that's Visa MasterCard over network. Visa, MasterCard, right. and that We're talking about pen not, debit. Right. Exactly. And so that's where the problem comes in because, you know, under the Dodd-Frank Act or the Durbin Amendment specifically, uh, merchants are supposed to have the ability to ch choose which network a debit card transaction goes over. Okay. Now, isn't the okay. I thought the I thought the debit network uh, to some extent was determined by the card being 
use, like like the issuing bank has certain networks that they use. Is well, that, that right? That, and, well, yeah, but the mer- that's the thing. Okay, the banks, the actually the merchant has the uh, has the choice. Is really? supposed to have the choice. Okay, I didn't know that. Okay. Yeah, yeah, and so and that's where the problem comes in because you know what we're having, what we what's going on now is you know especially with the COVID thing, the COVID pan- pandemic. A lot of people are shopping online or they're using uh, contactless, you know, tap right. and go type right. payments, sure. right? Well, okay, so if if you're a merchant and, 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 you know, the only choice that comes in with respect to routing is whether or not it's a pin debit. Right. So with, with online and with tap and go, they have what's called pinless debit. Sure, okay. okay. Yep. Which basically means you you know the you don't you're not using the uh, the pin you know, number, the but pin, it's but you're still running it over a debit network. But you're still running it over a debit network. Huh. Okay. But the problem is is that a lot of the big card issuers have not enabled pinless functionality for their debit cards. Oh, because they don't want to do it that way. You got it. They want exactly. it to run over their network so they get their assessments and they get their network access brand usage fees, et cetera, et cetera. Et cetera, et cetera. Ah, right. and, that's, and that's where the okay. that's where the kicker comes in because then the merchant doesn't get the ability to choose, right? Got it. Okay. So let me let me see if I can restate this so because I'm I'm with our listeners on this of making trying to make sense. Oh no, of it and all, I right? know it's confusing. That's yeah. why I wanted to take time to talk about it. <laughs> yeah. Okay. So let me restate this. So if I what I hear you saying is yeah, Visa and MasterCard, they own certain de- pin debit networks, but they don't own others. There are independent pin debit networks like Shazam, Pulse, you mentioned a few others. Right. So what you're saying is if they had enabled pinless debit, somebody could take I could take my MasterCard debit card that I have from my bank. I could right. go online and I could make a purchase without using my pin number, but it would run over a pin debit network. And in doing so, the card brands would not have any control over saying, well, it has to go through one of our networks. Instead, right. it could go over any of these Pendebit networks, maybe one of the ones they don't own and don't benefit from. So the way that they've gotten around this is they haven't enabled their pin debit cards to be able to do pinless debit. Basically, yeah. That's Did I it. say that right? In a, in a nutshell, okay. that's it. Interesting. And, 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 you know, and what, just to sort of throw a little bit in here, because you use the online example. Let's use the contactless example. Yes. And and there, in order for pinless debit to be um, possible, yeah. The, the chip, you know, okay, so what they use is, you know, tokenization, right? Right, right. And, and Visa and MasterCard have the decoder, like we used to yeah. say, what, the decoder ring? Right, <laughs> you know? right, right. So, so if, if the merchant wants to route a pinless debit, from my contactless card, say through Nice. Oh. Uh, nice has to go out to Visa or Mastercard. In your case, your Mastercard to get the decoding tokens to oh, deco- decode the I token. See. So then, in that case, that gives them an opportunity to even make the contactless card where it's not able to actually go over one of these other you networks. You got it. You got it. Exactly. Wow. Now, one other clarification. So when you say the merchant. For for the agents that are listening that don't fully understand this, when we when you say the merchant you know has the choice of where they want to route it, obviously in our case that's not actually like the pizza shop owner. You know, we're talking about the acquiring bank. We're talking about we're talking about the processor like Elevantesis for Stata. They are supposed to have the ability to route the transaction. Right. Right. Now I go for example, I go to my grocery store and I use my and this happens all the time. I use my I use my debit card, um, and they they will say, you know. 
on, on the terminal, do you want to bypass PIN? Which is another word to saying, do you want to use it as a Visa debit? Right. 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 So that has to be set up at the terminal. So you're right. It's the acquirer. Right. Okay. Interesting. And so the re now, I guess the part I'm missing is why does the, why does the acquirer care or why does Dick Durbin care? Are you saying that the result of all, the end result of all that is higher costs for the merchant? Higher cost. Yeah. According oh, to the, okay. to analysts at the consult, there's a consultancy called CMPS, CMSPI. Um, Catchy name. <laughs> isn't it? I know. I mean, I keep stumbling on yeah. it, but according, they did an analysis that said that merchants are unable to route about 50% of pinless debit through an ATM network hmm. at a cost of about $2 billion a year. Wow. Yeah. Yeah. So it's no small financial consequence. Sure. Know, difference. Yeah, whenever there's two billion dollars at play, then you know. Yeah, that's a you know that's you know a billion here, a billion there. Pretty soon you're talk, talking real money, as uh, <laughs> the expression goes. You're right. So so yeah, anyway, so Durbin is asked. He Durbin and uh, and a senator, excuse me, and a congressman from um, from Vermont, Peter Welsh. They want the Fed to uh, quote prevent what appears to be the anti-competitive practice of major debit card issuers refusing to enable pinless debit functionality. Well, I mean, just the fact that, that they're asserting that Visa and MasterCard might be part of anti-competitive behavior sounds ridiculous to me. That's <laughs> exactly it, you know? And, and you know, Fed, of course, has said it's going to look into it, right. but it's not the only one. I mean, I, I don't know. If, I'm pretty sure I reported on this last year uh, that the Federal Trade Commission is looking into whether I, I think I remember that actually. Pinless yeah, I think I remember you because because when you talked about this, I was like, I think I remember something about this from a previous right. episode. So now you got the FTC and the Fed and maybe some other bank regulators right. looking at this. Okay. Yeah, not you know. To me, the message is that the war over interchange is far from over. Yeah, yeah, and, for and, sure. And I personally don't think it's going to be confined to debit cards. Okay. Um, and it, and here's one reason why. You know, I think it's it's kind of fair to say, that at least when it comes to retail payment trends, they tend to start outside the U.S. and eventually make their way here. Yeah. You know, mm -hmm. the most ex recent example, of course, being the EMV cards. Right. You know, most of the rest of the world had adopted EMV years before we did here in the U.S. So here's a newsflash. In the U.K., the Supreme Court there this summer unanimously upheld a lower court ruling that concluded Visa and MasterCard interchange fees restrict competition. And they said the Visa and MasterCard may be on the hook for overcharges that go back as far as 2013. Yeah. Now, now damages haven't been awarded, but here's the some reports that I've come across say it could cost the card brands 22 billion plus. Wow. Um, to put this to to put this to rest, mm. you know, and, and and to kind of put that in perspective, remember the big wa uh, Walmart suit that pitted a bunch of most of the retailers against Visa and Mastercard, right? Right. That was settled back in 2018 for six billion dollars. Right. Right. So, yeah. I mean, they're just. Uh... I feel like Visa and MasterCard, you know, they're they're in that position where it's it's an enviable position. I mean, they're in a position of strength. They're in a position of, you know, what I would call practical monopoly, you know. Right, right. Um, and, you know, when you're in that position, everybody's gunning for you. And uh, it's and, not going to stop. that's unfortunately the case. It really is, you yeah. know. And, I, you know, the thing with the U.K., that it only applies in the U.K., but, you know, it's going to have implications yeah, for the U.S., for especially sure. if 
you know, a huge award comes out. You think the retail, you know, the Walmarts. Right. They're going to realize. They're, they're going to go for it. You know, yeah. especially mm-hmm. when you look at big brands like Walmart that are international anyway. Right. Well, and, and of course, one court. Well, of course, not to mention, think about the level of interchange fee revenue in the UK versus the US. US, right? I mean, so they're getting yeah. a 22 you know potentially a 22 billion dollar damages suit it's going to start there and that's when they're charging like what 0.4% interchange. Right. And we're charging 1.7 here in the US. Mm-hmm. So potentially there's, you know, a lot more at stake in a much larger market charging four times as much. Yeah. Um so yeah. wow. And yeah, I just think it's you know one of those things that we just you know a lot of people think it slides off the radar. But, you know, one of the things for me, I spent a lot of time covering Washington as a reporter. And when big pieces of legislation come through, yeah, we call them Christmas trees. Right. Because everybody's attaching yeah. something to it. Right. 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 And, you know, uh, there's a lot of there's a lot of potential Christmas trees percolating right now. Yeah. Yep. Yeah, that's a good point. I mean, there was almost a movement on the Durban Amendment with that one stimulus uh, bill that went exactly. through. Exactly. And that got, so, you know, it, it did, got didn't happen that there, side. But, but who says about, who, what about right. the next time? Right. Hmm. Wow. Yeah. Well, very interesting, Patty. I'm sure you'll keep us informed on this one. Of course. Thanks, James. This is Questions from the Field, brought to you by ccsalespro.com, the leader in merchant sales training and technology. If you're an individual merchant sales professional, visit ccsalespro.com forward slash training to get a free 14-day trial of our all-access pass. If you manage a team of merchant sales professionals, visit ccsalespro.com forward slash ISO to learn how we can help you grow. And now, here is Questions from the Field with James Shepard. All right, everybody. So, of course, earlier in the episode, we had a great interview there with Dustin. And you might have noticed kind of a a point in there. And I've had it on my radar screen to talk about on the questions from the field. I get a lot of questions about what should I talk about in my telemarketing script? Right. You know, what's going to grab people's attention? And, you know, lately, the obvious one has been cash discounting. Well, uh, last week I was in Orlando doing a consulting uh, gig, actually one of my last ones for a while because we were doing our ISO AMP launch. So I've been kind of, you know, uh, restricting the travel a little bit. But I was there and I was doing this, uh, you know, consulting and we were talking about they're opening a call center right now. And so we're talking about what do they want to use as a script? What's going to be the pitch? What's the value proposition? And, you know, they had a lot of success years ago with EMV. They were calling merchants. Hey, you need to upgrade your terminal because of EMV. And there was kind of this urgency to it. There was a clear call to action. You need a new terminal, which is good for everybody. You know, all these things. Um, And so I was talking to them about it and, you know, of course, cash discounting came up. That's what we want to use for our script. And while I think that's still a great idea, um, Mm -hmm. it is starting to get a little bit saturated. Now, just to be clear, I'm not saying cash discounting is getting saturated at all. I'm saying telemarketing for cash discounting is starting to be a little bit white noise. You know, you can definitely still stand out in a big way. I actually just did a new course on how to sell cash discounting. Uh, I included a script with it and all that stuff. So it can be done for sure. But contactless, I think, is really something that people are not talking about very much. Dustin just mentioned it as his best script. I told them the same thing. I said, if you had a lot of success with EMV, let's look at contactless. Do the same thing there because it's a sense of urgency because of COVID and the huge change. I mean, I've looked at all these reports on consumer behavior. You've talked about them, Patty, in the Insiders Report. Consumers Mm -hmm. care about this. So, you know. I I mean, I just recently had a chance with one of my cards to upgrade it to a contactless. Yeah. 
And I was on that like, you know, right away, right away. Yep. I mean, and now that's the card I'm using because it's the only one that I know I can use. Yes. And, and it bums me out when I'm at a merchant that doesn't have the contactless functionality yet. Yeah. And you may not even go back to that location. I may not, you know? Yeah. So I think it's one of these things where that kind of heightened concern about germs and things like that. Um, it's definitely having an impact there. And I think right. making merchants aware of it um, and uh -huh. then leveraging that to schedule an appointment to show you our contactless payment technology Right. Potentially a really big windfall for the industry. It's one of those changes where it's like, you know, I mean, let's face it, in our industry, if you have to embrace the change. If you don't, right. you're not going to sell anything because everybody already accepts credit card. So right. you got to get them to change because of a reason. So cash right. discounting is an interesting one. Contactless, though, is very interesting for a lot of businesses that are interested in cash discount right now um, right. or they're curious about it and everything. But contactless, it's like, look, whether you do cash discounting or not, we need you to upgrade need your hardware. Yeah. And, you know, I think you're like, this is the wave that's this is the next wave we're going right. to see. Right. And, you know, you're always better off getting that wave before it crests. crests. Yeah. And, and I, you know what? I'll be honest. I think we're probably going to be pretty close to that crust in, in six months. I, mean, I, would agree, I would agree. I don't think this I is going to be a long when one. Dustin said how, you know, how that I was, you know, I really took notice when Dustin said that earlier about how yeah. that that's the best uh, yeah. script he has right now. And it, and it tells me it's really. And it lot. does work very well. I've worked with several um, consulting clients on scripts for that. And it does work mm -hmm. very well because again, when you're doing a script, the two things that you need is you need a sense of urgency and right. you need a concrete action step. So, right. you know, in this case, the sense of urgency and that's, and that's frankly, that's what you lose with cash discounting because there's no sense of urgency. I mean, you're like, well, you could be saving more money right now, but like, Okay, right. but that's there's no fear tied up in that or, right. you know, it's not like a real sense of urgency like EMV was. Well, right. with contactless, you like, I mean, talk about the fear factor. You don't even need to mention it. It's pretty much just, you know, a given COVID, right. you know. So right. it's like the thing people are most afraid of right now. So there it is. And it's got that sense of urgency. And then the clear action step is we want to show you our contactless technology. They're very interested in that. And then they're ready to schedule that appointment for the demo of the contactless. And again, that could be you're selling with an ISV that has a great contactless reader or right. you're just doing a terminal with a pin, you know, whatever it is. It doesn't really matter. But you're going to come in and demo that. And that is a very effective approach to use when uh, scheduling appointments right now. Yeah. Excellent idea, James. Good stuff. Awesome. Thanks, Patty. Thank you for listening to the Merchant Sales Podcast. Whether you are an industry veteran, processing executive, or just trying to learn about the payment space, we appreciate your time. The Merchant Sales Podcast is a joint production of Greensheet.com and CCSalesPro.com, and we hope you will tune in next week for more information and tips on building your merchant services business.